In this interview with climate and wine scientist Professor Kimberly Nicholas, we discuss the urgency of the climate crisis and the need to scale up mitigation and adaptation in the wine industry and beyond to avoid catastrophic impacts of climate heating. Kimberly is originally from Sonoma in California's wine country and is currently based in Sweden at the University of Lund. She has also recently published a book titled Under the Sky We Make, highlighting the agency available to all of us to contribute towards a better world. Kimberly also produces a monthly advice column called We Can Fix It, sharing thoughts and engaging in broader discussion on this complex subject. With the lens focused primarily on wine, we look at the benefits of using a wider range of grape varieties, as well as the growing trend towards regenerative agriculture to restore soil carbon and build resilience. To give some context to why there is emphasis on words like urgency, catastrophe and resilience is because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, a scientist-led division of the United Nations, have in 2022 stated that we need to reduce our emissions in developed nations by 10-12% to 12% per year in order to have a 50% chance of holding warming from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius, global mean average. The world of wine may only be a tiny percentage of global agriculture, but is also a very sensitive crop and widely regarded as a cultural and luxury product. It is also greatly exposed to the risks of a changing climate and is widely seen as a leader in taking the actions required to transition towards true sustainability. Kimberly, it's lovely to speak to you. I recall seeing you in Porto a few years ago, and at the time you were issuing a call to action, really, to the wine industry, outlining some key actions with regard to mitigation and adaptation. That was 2019, and it really feels like the world's been turned on its head since then. And despite all the obvious shocks and catastrophes, can you sketch out the climate picture as you see it now in terms of this is more generally as a more emissions pathway trajectories. It does certainly feel like a long time ago. I hope you're not holding me personally responsible for everything that has happened since 2019, for better or for worse. But I, I mean, I think what has happened since then is that there is this huge increase in awareness of the urgency of the climate crisis. And people are aware of the science. They know that it's warming. It's us. We're sure it's bad. And now they're really focusing on more and more, we can fix it. That's the last part and maybe the most important part for us now, because we happen to be alive in this critical period of really just a few months. I mean, it's less than a decade now where it's now or never that we have the opportunity to avoid catastrophic climate change for the rest of our lives, the rest of really human civilization. So it's an incredibly important time. And I think we are seeing mobilization, both in terms of social movements and political action starting to follow, but still far too slowly. Um, but we know we still have a lot more work to do. And I think the wine industry has been a good example there where there is some real leadership happening, the people actually following science-based targets and committing to and starting to implement really dramatic emissions reductions and making this switch to a fossil free world, but definitely more work lies ahead. In your career, you've done a great deal of work studying climate change and viticulture. And when you take the pathways that we're, we're kind of, you know, we're always aiming for 1.5 degrees, although it seems to be a, a reducing window, the, the longer we delay. When you look at wine production, let's say in Europe, for example, what sort of pressures do you see building on 
viticulture. But in the, I say it as well because it's such a sensitive crop in many respects. Well, we know from research that the difference between limiting global warming to 1.5 and 2 degrees, it might not sound like much, but it really is the difference between life and death for people and places around the world. And viticulture is no exception. I mean, wine is a very climate sensitive crop. This is one of the reasons that people like me and maybe many of your listeners love wine because it reflects the place in which it was grown and how it was grown. And it bears this fingerprint of the place that it comes from. And that really is affected by and including the climate. So climate along with soils and other conditions, but climate really sets the limits for where you can successfully grow high quality world-class wine. And with the changing climate that we have now, that is putting a lot of pressure on vintners and, and people are running into limits. And that's something that we saw in this IPCC report, the United Nations Climate Panel report uh, of the last month or so, that we know that it is possible to make some adaptations to climate change. So we can urgently, we need to prevent things from getting worse by getting emissions down to zero as fast as possible. We also need to prepare for the impacts that we can't avoid and that are already here. And we have a lot of options for doing that, but there are limits to preparation and adaptation. And so far what examples and evidence from around the world is showing us is that adaptation is unevenly distributed and there are limits to adaptation. So we see that in the wine industry as well, that you know, what I was studying for my PhD in California was climate impacts on the wine industry and both from a biophysical sense, harvesting and peeling a lot of grapes and looking at how temperature and sunlight affects the composition of, of grapes and what that might look like in the future under a changing climate. And also talking with and studying the growers and winemakers themselves and how they were adapting to climate change. And you see that there is a lot of adaptation possible through a variety of techniques in the vineyard and the winery, but there are also are real limits to how much we can adapt. And I think the wine industry is increasingly aware of that, that some of them are starting to run into those limits or see them on the horizon. And that's a big motivation to make this sustainability transition happen. Okay. And uh, I've been spending quite a bit of time interviewing and, and I went down and did a sort of road trip around Alentejo and meeting producers who are very much on this sort of front line. I mean, I know there are quite a few front lines these days, but the, the soaring temperatures and consecutive days at high temperatures are putting a lot of pressure on. And the kinds of solutions I, I was seeing and I'm hearing about, it, I, I find quite inspiration in some ways. And one I think I wanted to bring up, because I heard you allude to it in Porto, was the use and the, the, the advantages that you can get from using indigenous varieties. It's something that is, almost sounds like it's quite trendy, but there's a real, there's a real you know, good bit of science or reasoning behind it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. We have a paper a couple of years ago that showed that over 80% of the global wine market is made up of just 12 varieties. So those are the most common that you see on the supermarket shelf or on the wine list at a restaurant, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, nothing against those. I enjoy drinking them myself, but there are literally thousands of other varieties out there. People have been cultivating wine grapes for thousands of years and developing and taking advantage of the natural diversity and exacerbating it and, and developing it towards 
varieties that are suited for all kinds of conditions. And what we're doing by having this kind of monocultural system, this very narrow system of wine growing, where we only take a handful of grapes is we're really limiting our options for adaptation because there are varieties out there that, for example, are much better adapted to warmer temperatures that are more efficient at using water, which is a scarce and limiting resource in many wine growing regions, potentially more so with ongoing climate change. So there are real options for adaptation and switching varieties. And that's something that we advocated for in this study because it's much more sustainable to keep vineyards where they are now and make adaptations in the vineyard, potentially including turning over or changing varieties rather than actually moving the vineyards northward to, for example, or uphill uh, to higher elevation. And that's because the planet is already pretty full. There are people all over the place. We're already using most of the land on earth in one way or another. We need to leave some of the natural land for nature. And, you know, we can't be moving our agriculture around and destroying what limited habitat remains. So we suggest that it's a real underappreciated option. And from our study, we found that, you know, back to this idea that there it, it's possible to adapt, but there are also limits to adaptation about, um, you can basically double your adaptive capacity by using a broader range of varieties and turning over varieties. That doesn't mean that there will be no impacts on the wine industry. There still are places that will really struggle and might not make it under a lot of warming, but it gives a lot, a, a real lifeline for a lot of regions. Okay. And when I was down in Alentejo, I, I noticed that there was a lot of work researching which varieties, which which properties they were you know, particularly looking for, ripening slower or these kinds of things. And it was also about well, how would the consumer react to these unfamiliar sort of varieties and I think having this kind of conversation of, of giving a reason why they're, they're suddenly appearing much more is kind of valuable as well. Another thing I noticed when I was just going around is the move from mitigation a while back most people were talking about mitigation now there's very much is about adaptation and resilience building and one of the areas which I, I found much more exciting than I thought I would it was around regenerative practices and I wondered if you'd had any experiences or insights around regenerative practices that you could share. Sure. Well, I think it's important that we recognize it. Basically, when it comes to climate change, you know, we have three options, prevent, prepare, or suffer. And prevent is mitigation. That's always the first and best line of defense. And it's urgently needed. And we're far behind on that. We do also need on top of preventing changes we can't manage, we have to manage the changes we can't avoid. And humans have already warmed the planet a little over one degree Celsius, and we're already feeling the impacts of that change. For example, in my home state of California and in the western part of the U.S., uh, the fire season has extended and the area of fires has about doubled because of human-caused climate change, and that's having big impacts on the wine industry. So resilience and preparation for changes are also needed, but I, I just don't want it to sound like we can choose between them. At this point, we need them both mm -hmm. because suffering is not a good option. To your question about regenerative agriculture, I actually just supervised a master's thesis on regenerative viticulture. So um, stay tuned for that. But that was something that we looked at trying to define more clearly. I mean, basically, I think of it as farming with rather than against nature. 
So using ecological principles um, to help grow food or, or wine in this case in a way that is not trying to fight nature, but rather work with it. And a lot of focus on regenerative agriculture is on rebuilding soil and rebuilding and maintaining soil health, um, including organic matter and carbon in the soil, which also fights climate change. Soil globally contains about twice as much carbon as the atmosphere. And the more soil we can keep, sorry, the more carbon we can keep in the soil or help the soil take out of the atmosphere is directly fighting climate change. So I think there's a lot of promise there. I mean, basically to stop climate change, humanity has to do two things. We have to stop burning fossil fuels, leave them in the ground. So no more coal, oil, and gas. And we have to make a change with our food and land system so that we're actually working with rather than against nature. And that is where regenerative ag comes in. You've just highlighted the, you know, that it's really stimulating this kind of sink in a way. From what you've just said about, you know, the real direction of flow to solve climate change, do you see this as something we can really scale up across not just viticulture, but agriculture broadly? Yes, I mean, we have to do it and we need to do it. There are plans for how to do it. Basically, how do we... So climate change is primarily linked to our use of energy. About three quarters of emissions from climate change come from the energy sector, and that includes transport and heat and electricity. And then about a quarter comes from our use of land, and that's primarily to produce food. So we have a plan for how to stop emitting greenhouse gases from our energy use. It's basically to leave fossil fuels in the ground and shift to sustainable, renewable, carbon-free energy, electrify everything and run it on electricity, clean electricity. And we have a plan for how to make the food system work within planetary boundaries as well. There's six steps to it. At this point, there are basically no silver bullets left because we have to do a lot of things simultaneously that have to work together. But you know, it's about conserving existing wildland, restoring degraded land, making better use and taking better care of the land that we do use, but it, it does work. Um, I mean, we can do it. It's also about the biggest single thing we can do to protect and restore land as, as consumers is to change diets and to reduce our meat consumption. So animal agriculture is the single biggest driver of unsustainability in the food system today. And we know that a healthy and sustainable diet includes much less animal products than is currently typical, for example, in the U.S. Okay, and and I think you know there's a there's a sort of tie over here between this sort of every all the stakeholders are consumers. There's wine lovers, wine producers, food producers. We're all in it, and as you say, we we sort of have a plan, but we don't seem are we ad, from your where you sit? Are we advancing fast enough towards it, or are we just edging? <laughs> Definitely not fast enough. I mean, it's clear that it's not fast enough yet. We need to be in countries like Sweden, where I am now, the US where I come from, we need to be reducing emissions about 10, 12% per year. So a good guideline is 1% per month. That's the pace we should be at. And, you know, we're somewhere five to 10 times slower than that in most cases. So we're about an order of magnitude too slow at the moment. But that's massive, isn't it? Um... To say 10% a year, I mean, that's a massive amount of emissions reduction. I mean, that's rapid. When they say rapid, that's, I suppose, that's, that's what they mean. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. If we had started in, 20, in the year 2000, we could have taken it at about 3% a year. 
So, you know, the best time to take climate action was definitely 20 years ago, but the second best time is now because this is the only time we have left. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, this is really to end on. I know you've you've recently written a book that's kind of dealing with a lot, with a lot of these issues that you're talking about, and, and especially with how the, the public are, A, getting much more aware of these issues, and in some cases worrying a lot more about it and again with a lot of the people that I engage with there's there's people on so many different places of where they think things are going or whether it's all finished or whether we're going to actually swing this around you know whatever the the idea is I just want to ask you as someone who's grown up in the wine world and made a career out of researching and communicating about climate change what would you envisage as a a plausible outcome for, for society and wine quality and supply by about mid-century. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, what research tells us right now is that we're headed for catastrophic climate change. With current policies, we're headed for about 2.7 degrees of warming, and that will happen within my lifetime. So in that kind of world, I think quality wine is going to be among the very least of our worries because then it's really a question of, food and water and basic needs for humanity. Um, So that is why it is so urgent that we actually seize this rapidly closing window that we still do have where it's not too late to make this fast and fair transition to a fossil free world. And if we do that, it is still possible to have a world where everyone has a good life, where nature is thriving and where we can enjoy beautiful wines that have a sense of place and reflect the care and the natural amazingness with which they're grown. And you're putting a lot of emphasis on choice there, I think. And your book is called Under the Sky We Make. And and there is this kind of idea that we do have some agency in this. Is that fair enough? Absolutely. And I think that's so important because, I mean, I know from experience and research also shows to take climate action, people need to believe that their choices matter. And that makes perfect sense. No one wants to waste their time with something that is meaningless. And so I think it's really important that people do understand it's not too late. It There is still time for us to make a big difference to, to make this transition happen. And we're the only ones who can do it because no one has done it until now. And we're really the last chance that the the climate and the planet and a lot of human civilization and some of the most beautiful wines have so i think it it is really important that people understand just how critical we are and if you happen to be alive and hearing this podcast then you happen to have been born at really the most critical time in human history and you have a critical role to play and i think my advice is that people It's not just about, I mean, I can give you the list of the most effective climate actions. That's what I do in my monthly advice column, which is called We Can Fix It and welcome your listeners to subscribe there. But it's also about figuring out, you know, what is it that I can do? What are my talents? What are my gifts? What are my values? And how can I use that to be useful to climate action? So it's not just about, you know, you don't have to quit your day job. If you have a day job that you're happy with, you know, which is great and you've developed skills there, please keep going and put those skills to use to help your company, your neighborhood, your family, your city start making this transition and speeding it up. Okay, well, look, that's a fantastic place to finish. And obviously people should buy your book and read it and and take all the 
all the stuff on board. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me.